A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello, my name is Sarah Colette, and I am here with the Thoughtful Faith Podcast. And today we are joined by Terrell and Fiona Givens, and um, we are so excited to have them. Uh, they have been married um, for, and I didn't actually catch how long. How long have you been married? A very long time. Okay. In fact, the numbers are so <laughs> high that I can't count them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Needless to say, you've shared a life together. You've raised six children together in Virginia, and um, you've recently published a book, The God Who Weeps, and um, I've read it, and it's it's a wonderful book, and I'm so grateful that um, something like this has come, come into my own life and also into the community of Mormons that I share. Um, recently, the book was selected as a um, book club selection for pathios.com for December and January. And this is the first time that an LDS book has been highlighted for pathios.com. So this is a big deal and very excited about that. And we would encourage all of our listeners to um, tune in and participate in the discussion um, starting on December 15th, I think. Um, also, um, Fiona, you have been a longtime collaborator um, on many projects, but this is your first author accreditation. So congratulations, and I'm thrilled that you're getting some of the credit for this. I think um, there is a need, so we're grateful that you're a part of this project. And um, we're going to go ahead and just start. Um, my first question is, who did you write this book for? Um, we, we are finding that we are permanently surrounded by particularly young people who are are struggling really with their faith, um, with the history of their faith. Uh, history is always messy, yeah. be it ecclesiastical, political, social. It's going to be messy. Unfortunately, for most of these people, they thought that their history was really quite clean. And so they're coming to see the warts um, that are entailed in all history. And, and it's been very, very disconcerting for many of them. And so this book arose out of that. Um, history really can't be sanitized. And the more of it that comes out, I think the more problematic it will be for many, many members. But our theology, on the other hand, we feel um, is absolutely sublime and beautiful. And for for us, the theology of our religion is so much more important than history. And so Terrell and I decided that we would love to um, bring out to the public uh, also an expression for ourselves, the beauties of core Mormon doctrine, which were actually re revealed in 1830, when many of these doctrines were simply not 
on the social or religious landscape. I I love that you talk about the fact that our history is filled with kind of these warts and that also it's going to be difficult for many people to face that, but also that these beautiful themes that we encounter within Mormonism came from that history, from Joseph Smith. Let me ask, um, when you when you decided to write the book, did this grow out of uh, like a long experience with many people or did it just kind of arise? What have you found? Is this a new need or is this older? Well, I think it was a coming together of several different factors and influences. Fiona has certainly mentioned what shaped the tone to a large extent. The more immediate precipitating factor had to do in large part with, with, with our frustration at the tendency of the public of the media especially, to focus on those aspects of Mormonism that are quite marginal, esoteric, um, and don't touch on the central concerns or issues of Mormonism. I was giving a conference paper to the Bonneville Communications Group, and I was faulting ourselves as a people in large part because I said we've been complicit with that compromise that I traced back to 1893, when at the Chicago World's Fair, we learned that the world was very happy to have us sing and dance, but didn't want us to talk about theology. And I said, the reason that the press focuses on so much of the ridiculous outliers is because we don't put forward our best theological propositions. And uh, and so I was invited by Sherry Dew to, to do just that. And um, I realized by the time I spoke with Sherry that most of my books had become full collaborations with Fiona, and so we decided to do this together. Oh, I'm so glad you did. Um, one of the things I was struck by as I read the book is that it, it didn't use the same language that I hear at church at all. In fact, I as I read through and I recognized these beautiful religious themes that I've kind of known my whole life, um, it was almost at the same time that I was confused about <laughs> how come um, I was challenged a little bit to read about them in this way. And I think the reason was because I'm so used to the I knows mm-hmm. and um, the assertions that we hear just fellow members and at church, you really use a different language. And I assume that that was done on purpose. Can you talk a little bit about that? It was. There's this beautiful scripture that we have in our scriptures It says, to some it is given to know that Jesus is the Christ, and to others it is given to believe on their words. And both knowledge and belief in the eyes of God are equally efficacious. And so it it has been a real concern for Terrell and myself to see this cultural shift from belief to knowledge. And, um, and if you don't, if you can't say, I know these things are true, then one feels alienated. Um, when belief is, is as efficacious, there's this beautiful story in the New Testament where a, a man comes to Jesus and he's probably exhausted all of the other people. He's been to the doctors and, you know, I, I think Jesus is his last resort, but his son is really, really ill and he will try everything and anything, don't we all? And he comes to Jesus, and, and even before Jesus can ask the faith question, which is really, really going to discombobulate this man, he just bursts out with, I believe. And then he looks into the Savior's eyes, and he knows that the Savior knows he doesn't believe. And so the next thing out of his mouth is, help thou mine unbelief. And what does the Savior do? He heals his son. 
And so um, we're, we're trying to say, we, what we're trying to do is um, respect and acknowledge the doubt. You, you really can't have one without the other, actually. Where there is faith, there is going to be doubt. And doubt is a, a wonderful prod, in, in, you know, to make you search more um, seriously, more deeply um, into your own faith tradition. Um, those long, long, dark nights of the soul are actually sanctifying. They're extraordinarily painful. But it, it reminds me, I, I teach doc, gospel doctrine, and when we're talking about that episode in Nephi where it goes completely dark after the crucifixion, there was actually a very healing thing for these people because there's nothing around to distract them. They have to go into their own souls. They're completely on their own. And faith crises have an opportunity to do that if we can hang in there long enough. It's, it's God giving us an opportunity to glimpse into our souls and see the beauty there that we often don't see ourselves. Was there a point in your own lives where you recognized a transition between your own I knows to a bigger question? And can you articulate that feeling, that experience? Well, I don't know that it was one particular moment, uh, although I have had faith crises of one sort or another. But I, I have often said in public that I think my spiritual gift is the capacity for doubt. I don't deny that others sometimes may know. God may vouchsafe that knowledge to any number of individuals. I certainly think that that is the promise that the Book of Mormon holds out. But I have tried to look upon my capacity for doubt as as a kind of gift uh, for two reasons. One, because I really relish the knowledge that I am using my, I'm exercising my will and my freedom to choose to believe in the face of conflicting options. And because I believe that it's given me a genuine empathy the language and tone that we assume in this book is not just a pose, it's authentic. We really do believe that there are reasonable grounds to disbelieve as there are to believe. And so maybe the difference that you detect in this book is that we don't begin with the assumption that the truths of the gospel are self-evident, because they're not. But we believe that there is a harmony and a coherence and a compelling power to the gospel narrative that Joseph Smith revealed that is fully reasonable by any true measure. One of the things that I absolutely loved in the book was that you didn't pull these themes from our own scripture as much as you pulled them from great authors and theologians and um, religions, also scientists, atheists. You quote such a wide range of people within the book. Well, this method, I think, comes out of an insight of Fiona's, and so I'm going to let her talk about the woman in the wilderness. Mm. It was um, it was many years ago. It's about fifteen years ago. I'd actually been asked to be a seminary teacher, and I'd been asked to give the kickoff lecture. And I'd been studying in Revelation. It was one of those epiphanies. I don't have very many of them, but it's Revelation twelve, and we have the conflict with the dragon and the woman, and the woman is pregnant, and she delivers her child, and the child is rescued. The child goes up to heaven. And the woman is left to confront the dragon, and she is not capable that the dragon is going to completely consume her and overcome her. And so she flees, and um, and she's fleeing with the Lord. It's really interesting because she flees into the wilderness, which is the apostasy, which we think is a very bad place. But if we look in verse 6, 
we learn that she flees into the wilderness where the Lord hath prepared a place for her to nourish her. And suddenly the apostasy takes on an absolutely different and brilliant light. When we think about it, all of the greatest theologians, philosophers, poets, artists, um, Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah. Most people would say that that's probably the greatest religious music ever, ever written came out of the apostasy. Shakespeare came out of the apostasy. I mean, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. God does not work ex nihilo. He had to prepare a people. If Joseph Smith came and spoke an entirely different language that did not resonate, nobody would have been attracted to the gospel in the first place. But this idea that God was nourishing um, these truths, that that they never disappeared from the earth. And I think that's what's so marvelous about Joseph, is that his mind was so magnanimous, and he recognized that. He recognized that really his only calling was to restore priesthood um, keys, and nothing to do with truth. In fact, in his idea, the truth was out there, and, and his injunction and Brigham Young's injunction was to go out and find all of the truth. So Terrell and I, in our own personal reading, our readings together, have found that outside our faith tradition, the truths that we so love are expressed and articulated in a far more beautiful way than we could ever express. And so we incorporate them because, not because they corroborate but because they enhance the doctrines that we espouse. I think it was um, beautifully accomplished in the book. And I, one of the things that um, struck me was that as I was reading, I didn't, I felt as though you were building a theology just kind of for the human race and for all of us. And then, of course, had the epiphany, oh, <laughs> it all applies. But I, but also we recognize it as our own. And I want to step back a little bit from that and say that LDS people, I think, struggle with, with feeling a ownership of the truth. And almost as though we withhold it from the rest of the world unless they come in to our religion. But this, but your approach in the book makes it feel as though we are simply a part of something that belongs to everyone. So practically, how do we take that home to our regular lives when we go to church or we're doing our visiting teaching? How do we navigate that struggle to want to own the truth, but also accept that we don't own the truth? Well, I think it does require an attitudinal shift. One of our favorite verses of scripture is Doctrine and Covenants section 49, verse 8, where the Lord is sending three men on a mission to the Shakers. And in the course of his remarks, he says to Joseph that the world lies under sin, save certain men I have reserved unto myself, holy men that ye know not of. So there we have a clear statement on the part of the Lord that there are other peoples and presumably other cultures and traditions that he values and honors as holy, sanctified individuals who live their lives outside the LDS tradition. And so I think we need to see ourselves as part of a larger whole. It helps me to think of the Mormon church in a, as a kind of modern-day Sadducees, uh, insofar as I think the primary responsibility that the Lord gave to Joseph, as I understand, and I think as he understood his mission, was to bring to fulfillment and culmination all of the priesthood ordinances and keys that we see active in the temple ordinances. So 
Mormons are guardians of the temple, but their enterprise, as you yourself suggested, is to see ourselves as part of a larger worldwide community of people striving to, to love God and honor him. So that is um, a very difficult place for some people to, to really reconcile and to feel at peace with. And I, um, I know that the temple in, in certain aspects gives us so much joy and comfort because it's kind of this, the center of our viewing of family. Can you apply that to um, kind of that, that greater struggle of how, how do we marry ourselves to the rest of God's children as a family outside of the context of the temple? I, so many of our members have split families or are struggling with um, partners who decide that they don't believe anymore. And I just know that it's such a hard thing to, to really address. Well, I, th- I think one of the most sublime doctrines um, that Joseph espoused, espoused was universalism and the infinitude of God's patience. I think generally for Mormons, uh, we focus on this life. If it doesn't happen in this life, it's not going to happen. And indeed, this life is um, important largely because it's a crucible of, affic- of affliction. It's like, what do we do with all of these, um, the horrors, the, the tragedies that beset us? But the universalism aspect of it, I think, is so absolutely beautiful because God loves all of his people. And I think if, I think the temples can strengthen us, but I think it behooves us to go outside of our faith tradition and find those other faith traditions with beliefs that resonate with us, building bridges. I'm all about building bridges. And we seem to be on fairly solid ground. We have these beautiful five doctrine, core doctrines that are not shared or, or found in a bundle in any other um, faith tradition but our own so we're we're in a strong place so i think it behooves us to move out into the other faith traditions into the communities to make ourselves uh, i i think uh, the lord said be anxiously engaged in good works not within our own communities specifically but to go out and in that way we can spread you know, the beauty of the gospel, the, the, the beauty of our temple covenants that we have made. And also what I think is so infa- important is that God doesn't have, he's not using a, 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 a stopwatch. You know, it's like, okay, okay, Joey, all right, it's 2013 and you're still not here yet. So that's it. I mean, his patience is infinite. So, and, and all of us are grieving over our loved ones in our families, I think, now, who have left the church. But um, as I learned from my experience with our prodigal son, Jonathan, God does not have a time schedule. He works with everyone at their own pace, and his patience is infinite. It goes into the next life as well. Um, I, and I think that gives great comfort and great hope when we feel that we are really lost or our loved ones are lost. Um, Joseph has this wonderful expression, God will ferret out every soul. He is a great architect, not just a repairman. And if he didn't have the capacity or the power to save us all, then what would have been the point? He would have been a pretty miserable God to begin with. But the fact is that he can, and I think that's just glorious. 
you address this in the book directly. One thing that you say is heaven is not a club we enter. Heaven is a state we attain in accordance with our capacity to, re- with our capacity to receive a blessing and sanctified nature. I think that um, there is kind of a division that forms between the doubters and the faithful. And the faithful think in terms of um, kind of they're guarding this this um, path to exaltation, and the doubters maybe threaten that. And the doubters feel as though they're trying to broaden that path to exaltation. And I, I want you to speak a little bit to that conflict and the, and the separation. You recently wrote a letter addressed to the doubter. But as I read the letter, I felt as though maybe more appropriately it would have been addressed to all of us. Can you use that letter to um, to marry us a little bit? Speak to that. Okay, you've, you've raised a couple of questions. Let me see if I can take each in turn. The, the first has to do with this conflict between those who feel that there is a certain selectivity or exclusivity to those who are saved and exalted, and others who want a more liberal universal vision of salvation. That conflict goes all the way back to the 1830s when Joseph Smith revealed the greatest vision of his career, which he just simply referred to as the vision, section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. He eventually had to tell the elders to tone down the preaching of that revelation because so many members were offended, both in England and particularly, I know, of many in upstate New York. They didn't like a vision of salvation that opened the doors to everyone. And I I think that there's been a recurrent tension modeled on that initial conflict. And it reminds me very much of the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament, who wanted to believe that God was going to burn Nineveh to the ground and save those worthy of being saved. And why would the book of Jonah be in the Old Testament if not to model for us a certain narrowness of vision that we must avoid at the peril of our own souls? Now, that's one side of the equation. Joseph was a universalist. He understood salvation to be universal. Um, In fact, he and Hiram both understood that everybody would eventually progress through all the kingdoms to find their way to exaltation. So did B.H. Roberts Roberts taught that, James Talmadge taught that. It was a staple of early Mormon Mm -hmm. teaching that we have lost. Now, the other side of the equation is that doesn't mean that we believe in what we would call a cheap salvation. Right? As Elder Holland has pointed out recently, salvation comes at a very, very heavy price, both to Christ and to ourselves. Our point is simply that God is patient enough to work with each one of us through that crucible of salvation, um, what, what Paul referred to as, as working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, yes, we do have to conform to laws. There is a, a discipline, there is a rigor to the gospel that will lead us towards sanctification but there's also infinite patience behind it. You recently wrote a letter addressed to the doubter. But as I read the letter, I felt as though maybe more appropriately it would have been addressed to all of us. Can you use that letter to um, to marry us a little bit? Well, what I was the letter to a doubter was an actual letter that I actually wrote to a family member who was going through his own crisis of faith. I was trying to make the point in that letter that many of our problems are a result of of simply bad assumptions that we make about what the gospel actually is and what it actually promises. This takes us back to the point we talked about at the very beginning. Part of the conflict has to do with the place of history in our church. We touched on this just briefly at the beginning, but I want to I want to say a few more words about the the the, the trouble 
with seeing our history as our theology, as has often been remarked. Now, there's no question that there is a striking parallel between Mormonism and Christianity in this regard. Christianity cannot avoid its history. If we no longer affirm the historical facticity of Jesus Christ's birth, death, and resurrection, then we have eviscerated Christianity of anything that is meaningful. So ultimately, it has to rest on a historical foundation. But that, at the same time, we see that even within the context of the Old and New Testaments, that history was already becoming mangled and messy and unpleasant. Prophets who disappointed the Lord apostles who fought and bickered one with another, early church members who fell into apostasy before the apostles were even dead. So what what we're trying to suggest is that we need to stop looking to our history as the principal source of our identity and our inspiration. We are rooted in a belief that God really did speak again to man, that Joseph Smith saw visions and received priesthood keys. But the point of that interaction with the divine wasn't the importance of those historical events. It was what was revealed through those historical events, the beliefs, the doctrines, the teachings that we've tried to to share. And unfortunately, as Terrell mentioned earlier, it's this idea of false assumptions, which the faithful fall into just as easily and readily as those who don't. And um, it, it's those false assumptions that are creating this huge barrier between the faithful and those who are not so sure. For example, um, the wonderful example is B.H. Roberts when he was asked this question about, um, can you explain to me how in a thousand years um, Hebrew could have devolved into all of the Indian languages from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, and he couldn't answer the question, and it troubled him all his life, because it doesn't. If we go back a thousand years in English history, Chaucer might be a little difficult to read, but we still recognize it as English. Well, the fact is he was working under a false premise. Lehi did not come to the Americas and propagate the entire continent. Um, there's every evidence that there were numerous peoples here. And in fact, the, 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 um, landmass which were, was inherited and, and inhabited by the descendants of Lehi was probably a little smaller than the state of Idaho. Now, when you see that, it, it collapses. But many of our faithful members are also working under similar false paradigms, which have generally tipped a lot of them over into the, what am I going to do now? You know, if that was wrong, what else is wrong? And so I, I think that it really is our responsibility. I think, one, we attribute too much responsibility to our leaders and too much responsibility to the Lord when we should be taking a lot of responsible for our working out our own salvation on our own. If things don't resonate with us, we, we shouldn't just run. We should, why? And, and then tackle. For me, it's always the scriptures. It's like going, I'm a very textual reader. Um, and there is a lot in the scriptures that does not res- resonate with me. The blood of Canaan, all of those things. But for me, I think... Well, Joseph Smith said, in order to exercise faith and salvation, one needs to know that God exists and one needs to know his correct character and attributes. Well, from my point of view, the Old Testament particularly is filled with incorrect 
attributes in God, especially if, as Terrell and I feel, the defining attribute of God is his vulnerability, then, then him, you know, condoning and promoting genocide is just not one of his characteristics. But I think it behooves us as members of the church to engage with these things ourselves rather than trying to deflect blame on our leaders um, and uh, and on the history. I, I, I would like to see us take more responsibility for what I think is a very personal um, cost of salvation, a, a personal um, road back to our Father in heaven. Let me reflect back to you and see if I'm, if I understand what you're saying. So to take these, these conflicts that we find within scripture, within our own faith and apply them to ourselves personally, how do we misunderstand God? How do we misinterpret him? How do we misinterpret the context of history in our own religion and then find ways to correct them in our own lives? Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. I think, um, that one of the things that has troubled many people, but also um, that they're trying to navigate a way through is how do they, from a practical standpoint, go into their communities, their wards, their associations with other members, and do that in a way that does not cause disharmony, because so many of us struggle to, to voice some of these conflicts in a way that doesn't create more conflict for us. And I, and I specifically, you know, we, we tend to be hard on one another and there's a lot of judgment passed around. Well, Mormons are very good at judgmentalism, but I also think that it's actually the case that the they are really the us. <laughs> in, in other words, I, there are, if you were to take a poll in a typical ward, and I did this once in a high priest quorum, and I said, how many of you in here have actually had what you consider to be a dramatic, scripturally, type um, manifestation of the Holy Ghost to you of the truth. And a high priest tentatively rose his hand and said rather embarrassedly, I, I never have. And the one next to him said, well, I, I really haven't either. And pretty soon there was kind of this love fest as they were all patting each other on the back and saying, well, I haven't either. I haven't. Boy, it sure is good to be able to say that in public. <laughs> The more we circulate among those, the, the groups that Fiona referred to, those who struggle, who are, feel marginalized, the more we have come to decide that, that this is a, a, a problem among the generality, that this level of expectations and this rhetoric of certainty have intimidated vast portions of the Mormon membership into silence or intimidation or discomfort. And so, you know, I'm reminded of, of a story, I don't know how apocryphal it is, but a bishop of Salt Lake Ward who had conflict with Brigham Young and he was hauled on the carpet and, and reamed up one side and down the other. And as he turned to leave, Brigham Young said, I suppose you'll probably leave the church now. And the bishop turned around to face him and said, why would I do that, Brother Brigham? It's not your church, it's mine too. And I think that's the kind of ownership that members need to feel. We blame Mormon culture, but we are Mormon culture. And so, as Fiona said, we just need to take more ownership and stop blaming the church or historians or leaders for those dissonances that we are perfectly capable of resolving ourselves through personal study and prayer. And and I think also, you know, all of this happens on the ward level. We're seeing all of these people. I've confronted these people. I've been hounded by sisters, anxious for my salvation, trying to steer me on the right path. And um, 
I, and and so I, I think it's a lot of a vocabulary. One, the judgmentalism is huge, but two, I think for many of those who consider themselves faithfully strong, I find that that is not is not the case. I find they are in defense posture. Their testimonies are actually quite brittle. And the more brittle one's testimony is, the more aggressive one becomes to protect what they feel to be the truth. So given that, given what Elder Nelson has so eloquently said, that we all carry crosses, for those of us who have faith crisis, who have doubts, perhaps we should be more generous towards them. I mean, they're the ones hurling all of the abuse at us. But quite frankly, my experience has been is that the greater the anger, the deeper the hurt. So they're probably feeling the same uh, disunity, discomfort, and crisis themselves, but but can't bring themselves to say it because it would be it'd be an act of betrayal. And so you know, so it, and and I think everything that is really important happens on the ward. So on the ward level. So I think for those of us in faith crisis who feel that we are being alienated. We're being pushed away because they're frightened. So if we make a great effort, and I think it sounds trite, I know, but this this concept of love and tolerance is so important. And that if we don't, you know, explode in Sunday school would be very helpful. Um, if we just said, you know, I, I, you know, I'm having problems with this. You know, I, I read this about Joseph Smith. It's disconcerting me. You lower you know, you, you lower that sort of, you know, nuclear bomb that's about to explode. If we possibly can lower animosity by the vocabulary and by the way we speak and express our concerns, I, I, I think that would be a great, a great step forward. One of the things that I have um, experienced is a feeling of not wanting to let out my doubts around others because I feel that that it would cause crisis. And having gone through my own dark nights, it's a painful process. And so I think we struggle to to open the door to questioning sometimes, but also to keep others out because we we fear the pain that they might have to go through. Um, in your book, you you say the greatest act of self-revelation occurs when we choose what we will believe in that space of freedom that exists between knowing that a thing is and knowing that a thing is not. And we touched on the, or Terrell, you touched on choice just a, a moment ago, but can we revisit that and speak about this, this act of choice? Because I think so often um, we don't choose our faith. Well, it's ironic that nobody puts a higher premium on free agency, free will, than Latter-day Saints, and yet they seem to apply it so poorly and infrequently to the most important matters, which are faith and belief. We've, we see readily enough that if I put a gun to your head and tell you to do something, that that's coercion. But coercion can be fully intellectual as well as physical. We don't really choose to believe the law of gravity. If I drop a stone, I'm not free to believe that it won't fall. I have to believe that because the evidence is so overwhelming. It compels me. So if the Lord has told us that we are blessed for our faith, then that must mean that our will has some role because he couldn't bless us because we have blue eyes or damn us because we have 
the wrong complexion or, or, or height. So faith must be a function of the will. And it's my belief that God has orchestrated, created mortality, the mortal condition, in such a way that there is always a plenitude of evidence from which to draw in order to construct our belief or disbelief. And that is why I believe that this creates the optimum environment for us to actually exercise choice. And I feel that personally I am free to choose because there are good reasons to believe that Joseph Smith was a fraud. But there are good reasons to believe that he was an inspired prophet of God. And my heart inclines me to believe. But that belief doesn't come upon me like the law of gravity. I choose it. And I'm grateful that it's something I can choose. Um, this is a wonderful segue into, in the letter to a doubter, you, you specifically address prophets and the fallibility of prophets. And I've also heard you say um, that they are flawed. <laughs> and you, um, not in just kind of a funny, you know, Joseph wrestled too hard. Kind <laughs> anger, of <a> way. <laughs> anger management issues. Right, right, the right. same stuff of which we are made. Right. Yeah. Well, our... but, but great flaws. Can yeah, you, yeah. How do we take that and apply it to our now? Because um, we live in a church where we revere a prophet and sure. brethren and leaders. And oftentimes um, we are given direction on this idea that if you are faithful, you will follow your leaders. Speak to that a little bit. Well, I, I'll, I'll jump in and then I really want to hear what Terrell has to say. I grew up in the Catholic tradition. That is my basis. And the reason why I joined the church was because I felt that Christ had been completely obscured by his mother and a myriad of saints and was no longer visible. I felt also that he was the key to salvation. So what I loved about the Mormon church was this idea of placing Christ front and center. I also grew up in a faith tradition where the Pope was considered infallible. Um, and Mormons reverse, you know, the prophet is, but nobody pays attention to the Pope. Um, we claim that the prophet and our leaders are fallible but we treat them as though they are infallible. And I think, I think that's a, a great disservice to them and to us. Joseph was really free. He said, look, I'm not a righteous man. You know, I, I, that, and, and, and it was echoed by the Lord. You know, I've chosen you, Joseph, because I wish to show my wisdom through your weakness. So the, the Lord's propensity is to call weak people to lead. It's all about Gideon. You know, it's as if, if the quorum were filled with Mother Teresa's, we'd all be going, oh my goodness, look at all of these Mother Teresa's. That's not the point. The point is to show us to Christ. And that can only be done through fallibility. Um, President Kimball was quite adamant when he said that Brigham Young was wrong when he preached blood atonement and the Adam-God theory. And there have been numerous prophets since and apostles since who have said very erroneous things. And we can either take that and go, oh, my goodness, that means the whole system is wrong. Or we can go back and remember that God said, I've chosen the weak things. So in spite of their deficiencies, their sins, their, their inabilities, I have still chosen them to be my leaders because they point to me, that's that's the whole point, and it also, quite frankly, makes the rest of us look a lot better than we think we are. 
<laughs> Daryl, do you have something to add to that? No, mostly just amen to all of that. What what is all has been curious to me is where do we get the contrary idea? Mm-hmm. There is no example in the Old Testament of, uh, that I can think of of a, of a godly, pure, and perfect man. Abram was a coward and a liar, and he always... Well, he fudged the truth. Well, no, but, but he did it through cowardice, and um, that, that poor Most, king's people was going to be eradicated as a result of it. It was really serious. Moses takes glory to himself. Jonah flees the Lord. Peter and Paul can't get along and fight and squabble. So it's as if the Lord is deliberately setting up a a template in which we see the point is not the perfection of the leaders. It's the miracles that happen through them. And where we reverse that paradigm in the case of our modern leaders, I don't know, but we have done it to our own detriment and to theirs. So perhaps we take their flawed experience and wake up in the morning and say, how can I live within my flaws in in a better way? And well, exactly. I mean, you know, you could take a book like Rough Stone Rolling, right, which is the, the, the magisterial work of Richard Bushman and Joseph Smith, and it really fractured the audience that read it. Half found it um, a, a, a detriment to faith and testimony and a sacrilege on his name. And then there were others who responded as my son did, the one who had had a very, uh, a very, followed a very crooked path for a number of years before making his way back. He wrote me from his mission and he said, Dad, he said, this book did more to strengthen my testimony than everything anything I've ever read because I thought if God could do such mighty works through him, maybe there is still hope for what he can do through me. And I think that's the message we're supposed to take from the principle of prophetic leadership. Well, and I think, too, when we see, and, and I, 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 this, this has been so compelling to me, we are a tiny church a tiny Christian church. We're a blip on the screen. That's why we love to go to um, multi-denominational meetings for music because we feel, I feel part of a much larger Christian tradition which is powerful and surging through the earth. But I also remember when the river Zambezi overflowed and there were two helicopters in the air pulling Africans out of the water and one of them had been rented by the LDS church. Then people go, What? Who are they? What are they? How did they get here so fast? I mean, I, I just think, you know, those are the things, you know, God chooses and we're all weak. Our leaders are weak. We are weak. That's the whole point. And so the people can go in absolute astonishment. How on earth did they do that? There must be something. Yes, there is something. There is God. The whole purpose of, of, um, of Christianity in general. And I think the Mormon church in, in particular is to point to Christ. It's the most important thing we can do. And I, I, I think in many ways we do it well. I, hearing you say that, um, it, it makes me think in terms of these greater um, Christian principles, which really, as we read your book and you take us through these five kind of beautiful, universal themes, um, we really, we want to know how can we encounter these truths on a regular basis? And it also begs this question that oftentimes I think we, we really focus in the mundane and, and the details of our doctrine get really, uh, I don't, I don't, I mean, details, right? Little tiny details. And, and we have whole lessons on little aspects of our doctrine. 
it's hard sometimes, I think, for people to navigate through all of the little idiosyncrasies of our own faith and our own doctrine to find these broader, beautiful Christian principles. Can you speak a little bit to that? Well, I'll share an experience we had in Notre Dame Cathedral just this past summer. We were walking around the cathedral from the outside, and we were admiring the statuary and the beautiful stonework and masonry and the magnificent flying buttresses and thought it was fully impressive. And then we walked inside the cathedral. And as we were bathed in this just splendid array of every color of the rainbow, I thought, what an apt metaphor for the gospel. It can look so different depending on whether you're looking at it with the eye of a critic or whether you are looking at it through the eye of a disciple. And Elder Cook spoke in the recent conference about, he touched on the theme of doubt, and I think some of his comments were misunderstood. He didn't say that we don't have an obligation or the right to delve into our past, but he used the word immerse. He said there's a problem that happens when we immerse ourselves in that which is negative or that which is peripheral. And so I think the bottom line is that Fiona and I see this book as our prose hymn to the beauty of the restoration. And we have found that when we focus on what is good and true and of light, then uh, our hearts reverberate within us with the knowledge that these things are good and true. And I think going back to what you were saying about the details, I agree, we often get um, caught up in the details. We're very pharisaical in that regard. And it's not surprising because we're a a church of ordinances and, and, you know, there are certain things you do at age and 12 and whatever, and we walk through them all. And but, but for me, um, I, I think we have impoverished ourselves by saying, and, and this is just me speaking when we say that we cannot use outside literature and sources when we are teaching. I feel we deprive ourselves of a great richness because I find in in so many works as as I'm as I'm teaching my lessons that they add and and again this is the universality of of our belief and of Christianity that we can bring in um these great authors philosophers to enhance and not, not the details but enhance the real beauty that is core to to our our belief system um, I, I think that's that I think that's most unfortunate when we are saying, you know, use the manual and the scriptures. The scriptures absolutely. But but there is so much out there that has been said about the scriptures that is articulated more eloquently, more sublimely, and with much greater power than we lesser mortals teaching gospel doctrine can do. I I, I think that would enhance so much and elevate I want to address now personal revelation a little bit. And you touch you touch on this idea of communicating with God in your book, but also in the letter to a doubter. And there are flaws with um, with this idea of receiving revelation from God, and it it, it can be both beautiful and joyous, and also create conflict. You know competing individuals <laughs> um, receive revelations that seem to contradict. Speak a little bit about that and and how how we can navigate. Okay. I don't I haven't personally seen much problem with 
competing revelations. I've seen much more consternation and frustration with the absence of revelation in spite of the promises. And let me just say quickly two things about that. First is, I had an experience on my mission where my president promised us that we would have a revelation that our mission was accepted before we went home. I prayed and fasted and waited. It didn't come. So I went to the mission president to ask about this. And he said, well, how do you feel about your mission? And I said, I feel terrific. It was the happiest time of my life. I'm just thrilled with the two years I spent here. Until he met me. And he said, (laughs) and he said, and you don't think that was a revelation? He said, you just want something you can consume upon your lusts. Well, it wasn't a very gentle thing to say to a young missionary, but I thought about it a lot since. So I think we misconstrue many times the nature of revelation because it comes upon us too gently and subtly. But I would also say this, the Kirtland Temple experience at the time of the dedication is an important lesson for individuals and for the church. Angels were seen, the rushing of wings, manifestations, charismatic gifts. It was a time of absolute Pentecost. And then a few years later, at the time of the Nauvoo dedication, absolutely nothing. And I think most of us want to have Kirtland dedications throughout our lives. But in the economy of heaven, we're we're lucky if we get one. And if we don't even get that one, then I think we need to find what I have referred to as solidarity with the desolate, with the Gerard Manley Hopkins and the Mother Teresas and the others who testify to having spent their entire lives in a spiritual wilderness and still waiting to the end of their lives for that revelation that never came but certain in the knowledge that they were waiting upon the Lord nonetheless. I think this is the the one verb that repeats itself through the Book of Mormon is remember. My um my conversion to the church was Pentecostal. It was filled with the most incredible experiences for three weeks. It was really Pentecostal. And since then nothing. I've had occasional glimpses, I've had some but nothing like that. Um that would be a form of coercion. You know, if every time we asked for an answer to prayer, it came, if we expected revelation of this regard, but we are supposed to feel our way through back to our Heavenly Father. And so, you know, I I think it's that idea of remembering when we get into those crises of faith and all is black around us. Um, We had this incident with Terrell when he was working on his first book, Viper on the Hearth. He had to wade through all of the anti-Mormon material. And there came a point where it was so dark for him We went on a walk, and I walked him back. When was the first time you felt that the Book of Mormon might be true, that Joseph Smith might be a prophet? It was was just walking him through these things because the darkness in which he was engulfed was so intense, he could not see his way out of it. And that comes to many of us. And so it's like, you know, either remember or take solace in the courage for me, the incredible courage of Mother Teresa when she did have a Pentecostal experience as she was being called to do this. And then nothing. Heaven is closed from every side to me, she said. And yet she continued. She continued to do good works. She, that, that, that to me is, is, is the greatest form of courage for our members who are, who are struggling in the dark, but continue, keep pressing forward. And I, and, and I have a feeling that the Lord does that. I mean, we see that in Lehi. He's desperate to get out of the wilderness. He's frightened. And, and it's then that the Lord comes and, and the revelation comes. And it is magnificent. But it's sort of, you know, we have to keep trudging, clanging, clinging on by our fingernails. But in my experience, the epiphany has come in my life. 
There is light at the end of the tunnel if only we can summon the courage to tread when everything seems barred against us. Um, I feel true. I feel that this is this is true. I've experienced it in my life. I think we're we're almost out of time. Um, but I want to get to this one last expression. I think in the book you really touch on um, well, you paint God as a very emotional, um, compassionate, understanding Father, who 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 really does um, kind of walk with us, but that sometimes we really are in the wilderness. We, we feel alone and we feel as though a loving God can't be with us. Also, at the same time, you've, you've spoken about the great courage that it takes to remain in that wilderness and in that struggle. If you could leave someone that is in the midst of that wilderness and, and questioning its value or its purpose, um, with one bit of advice, what would you, what would you give them? I would point to Christ. I don't know when he felt abandoned. It wasn't at the last minute on the cross. Maybe he was completely abandoned when Peter left. But I have a feeling that when he said he trod the wine press alone, from that very moment of his arrest, being struck by Caiaphas, he was on his own, completely on his own. There was no spirit with him. There was an angel in the garden of Gethsemane, but not, not on the road to Golgotha. He, he did that entirely on his own. And the question is when he hung there on the cross and he's, he's staring into what I feel is the universal fear, oblivion. That's why we have the Grimm's fairy stories of horrible stepmothers, because the real mothers know that they will die, and they're terrified of being forgotten, that they will have lived for nothing and sacrificed for nothing. Into that oblivion, Christ Christ appeared, and he could have got down off the cross. You know, that was I think that was the most challenging faith crisis for him, and yet he persisted. And are we not so grateful that he he saw it through to the very end, even though there was nobody there to support and sustain him in this last faith crisis? So I, I think I would point to him, and are we not grateful that he did not come down off that cross, but he stayed and endured to the end? Thank you. I I think this concludes our time together. I'm so grateful to have had you um, sit with me and and speak about your faith. And I wish you all the luck and would remind our listeners to um, go out and get the book. It is a wonderful, uplifting um, spiritual journey to read. And um, thank you. For we being are here. so grateful for, for this us. wonderful discussion. Thank you so much indeed. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com.
Seal it, seal it. 